Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Hey, 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 First Gen family. I'm so glad to be back here on another episode, hitting it on Tuesday this week, which is good because I've noticed that there aren't a lot of great hunting podcasts that come out on Tuesdays. So hopefully I can help fill in the gap for you on your normal podcast lineup. I just got done recording with the Hunt Therapy crew. So it'll be a new Hunt Therapy episode coming out next week, uh, following up this one. And this is man one of the probably probably one of the most impactful conversations i've ever had on a podcast before and i do host two podcasts i host not just this one but also the prairie farm podcast so if you haven't tuned into that one yet be sure you do i think you'll enjoy it especially if you are any in any way shape or form tied to the ag industry or a conservation nut such as myself i think you'll enjoy that but uh in this conversation here with eric morris of non-typical outdoorsman uh we talk about the conversation that is so challenging to have um we talk about the racial diversity gap that is very real in the hunting community and uh it is a tough conversation i feel awkward just even previewing the episode because it's such a tough conversation but eric is the perfect guy to talk to about it he's as real as it gets nothing uh nothing makes him you know uh uh shy to talk about it uh he's not easily uh, offended by me stumbling over my words and and knowing how to ask the questions the right way he he uh he he takes me as i am basically in this interview and uh uh he made it a lot easier to have the conversation that needs to be talked about but we're also going to to say at some point here in the conversation eric brings this point up that it can't all just be talk we got to walk the talk we got to actually uh put some of these things in the motion that we talk about to help people who uh come from a different background uh than our our own uh and by our i mean if if you uh are in the same uh situation as me a a white dude who uh, likes to hunt uh there's a lot of us and uh sometimes that can make it crowd that that reality can kind of make it feel like it's crowding other folks out and we don't want that we want everyone to have uh a open invitation that they they sense is there for them to jump into this hunting community in fact that's really why i started first gen hunter I, i know that for anyone who wants to get into hunting there is a fair level of of anxiety to starting out something new something that you know nothing about and you know you aren't going to be very good at for a while 
uh, but even more so if uh, there's no one else there that looks like you and and has the same experiences you do and so it's a very important conversation that I have with Eric and uh, he is so patient with me like I said um, just a great great guy and uh, not just for his ability uh, willingness to have these conversations but uh, he's a great hunter too you look at his instagram uh, which you'll find in the show notes here um, or check out some of his uh, hunting uh, videos that he releases um, you will see that uh, he is a very skilled hunter as well someone who's hunted in a lot of different areas not just in the country but around the world and so uh just a fantastic conversation i had with eric um and i think you're going to enjoy listening into this one if nothing else hopefully you find it to be very educational and hopefully it can help bring about some much needed change in the hunting community and uh i'd love for uh to be able to like look back a hundred years from now if i can uh i don't know how heaven's gonna be maybe we'll get that opportunity but uh i'd love to be able to look back and see that this issue doesn't even exist anymore um and that hunting is fully enjoyed by everyone who has any interest in hunting at all so that's what this conversation is going to be make sure make sure make sure if you haven't left uh some feedback on the podcast please do so uh we greatly appreciate a five-star review on spotify or apple Podcasts. that helps get this podcast circulated out to others and if you uh have anything you'd like to say to me please drop me a line on instagram or uh through the email service on the website and uh you could even uh go to uh facebook and find me there as well or go wild so a lot of different places you can interact with me i love hearing from you and um uh just uh want you to know that you're the reason i do this so without any further ado here let's roll into episode number 104 here on the first gen hunter podcast presented by spartan forge the best hunt app there is out there on the market Uh, you can use it for navigation deer behavior prediction uh, marking stands and trail cameras and everything else if you don't have spartan forge please download it and get the kind of subscribed service that matches your needs the best Well, I am joined today by an, just a really cool guest, and I'm going to introduce him here in a second. But first of all, I want to find out what was our guest's best day of hunting ever. So, Eric, I'm I'm putting you right on the spot here, buddy. Your very best day of hunting. Can you uh, kind of paint that picture to us? Yeah, yeah, can't. That, that's um, that's an easy question. I've hunted a lot of things, Africa, Alaska, all over the all over the U.S. But my best day of hunting by far that comes to mind is 2015 out in Kansas during the opening day of duck season. And um, you know I'm from Alabama, and um, you know here duck hunting is not a big thing in the South. But my very best day that has stuck with me um, for many years is back in 2015 opening day in Kansas. I'm out there at Jamestown WMA 
hunting ducks and um you know um they were flying good i had my five-month-old five-month-old chesapeake bear retriever out there for his first hunt nice he's uh you know i'm shooting teal um you know shooting uh mallards and uh i looked up what, make, what makes that day so so rememberable is that i looked up and there were ducks flying low coming into the marsh mm-hmm. they, i look up higher there's another you know flocks of ducks going left another higher ducks going right higher you got the geese so i stopped and I just looked around and I was like in, in sheer amazement just watching them, the sheer variety and amount of waterfowl flying that day. And, um, you know, watching my dog work as a puppy, five months old, retrieved seven ducks on his first hunt that weekend. So um, that one sticks out with me very, 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 very uh, distinctly. That's awesome. I, I love that connection between a hunting dog and, and, uh, the handler. And, um, oh, yeah. recently I interviewed Ron Bame. He's actually, uh, as we're recording this, he's on the most recent episode of the podcast. Uh, by the okay. time this one releases, there'll be several more up there, but, <clears throat> uh, when we had that conversation, so Ron, he is the host of the hunting dog podcast. So big into the gun dog world. And, uh, I would say he's probably, I would assume, I guess I never asked him, but I would assume Ron's done a fair amount of waterfowl hunting, but he's mostly an upland guy. And, uh, we talked about how with guys like me, first gen hunters, the guys that got into it as an adult, um, their hunting dog actually played a really crucial role in getting them into it. You know, it's like here I have this, you know, man's best friend right here. I got this, this dog that is wired to hunt like it, like a a chassis, like you have. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, that your dog is just meant for the water, meant to be a working dog in the water, Mm -hmm. retrieving birds. Mm -hmm. And that connection can really, for lack of a better term, drag the handler into hunting because they're like, man, it would be almost a crime to not let this dog hunt. You know, right. it's, it, right. it, it, it's what they're meant to do. You know, I just had my bird dogs out for an hour before we got on the call here. It's pheasant season in Iowa. And, um, mm. uh, you know, just watching how happy they are, you know, mm-hmm. it's my, my, uh, dog that actually got me into hunting um my he's a seven and a half year old Brittany, and okay. you know seven and a half that's when they start well it sounds like your dog's same age as mine pretty much they, they, um, he's nine next may and he started to show he's, he's good but he's starting to slow down a little bit mm-hmm. he, he's still a bit, but when they get older sometimes they, they do slow down sometimes they have a little bit more ailments yeah uh, those types of things so yeah yeah. Yeah. So you get exactly what I'm talking about. It's starting to show their age a little bit, but when he's hunting, he looks younger. I don't know if you've ever yeah. noticed that yeah. before. You oh, just yeah. like, oh, yeah. it's like their eyes light up in a different mm-hmm. way and, mm-hmm. and their posture is different and right. it, it's just so powerful. But I think it's cool that you use that to describe your best day because I don't know what, it's kind of an unfair question that I ask because there's so many good days hunting, <laughs> right, right? Right. But I don't know if I could, out to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know if I could pick a, pick one myself, but if I did, mm-hmm. there's a good chance it'd be one of those days where just was mm-hmm. on, you know, the dog was on fire and having that yeah. 
that connection between me and the dog is just so special, but mm-hmm. uh, that's really cool. Well, Hey, you started introducing yourself there a little bit, so I should probably uh, be a good host here and tell our listeners who's on the other end of the line with me, but this is Mr. Eric Morris of non-typical outdoorsman TV. And uh, we're going to talk a whole lot more at uh, probably towards the end of the show. So people can have it fresh in their minds, how they can uh, get on board and subscribe to some of your content. But, um, okay. Uh, Eric is an outdoorsman through and through, um, Eric and I have not known each other long at all. We've, we've been on the phone here getting this conversation worked out and everything and having some tech issues that we had to work through. But, but, um, if you follow him on, uh, Instagram, uh, you can see that Eric is my kind of guy. We are not, I wouldn't say we are hunting specialists. We are hunting generalists. If it moves, flies, uh, flushes, we're chasing after it. And um, that doesn't mean that Eric's not a good hunter by any means. It just means he likes hunting them all. He's uh, he gets after everything. And I like that a lot about Mm -hmm. Eric, you know, and there's nothing wrong. You know, you see guys that are like whitetail specialists where it's whitetails or nothing. No, that's fine. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, I I've interviewed uh, guys who are well, like Ron Bame. He's, he's, uh, you know, strictly uh, a bird hunter for the most part. And mm-hmm. uh, we've, we've had uh, other guys who are really just into rabbit hunting. You know, that's right. great. You know, if that's what makes them tick and gets them outside, no, you know, who am I to judge that? But I think it's fun when you get after squirrels, you get after doves, you get after waterfowl, you get after deer, you get after pheasants, you know, turkeys, mm-hmm. all that stuff. You just, Bear. yeah, bears. <laughs> yep. All of that is just, uh, I don't know. I I think you you get such a good appreciation for the different parts of the ecosystem when you interact with so many different players. I guess you could say. Right, right, but, right. I agree. But Eric is definitely a, a generalist in that sense. He he likes to get after all kinds of different game, which is really cool. But you said you came from Alabama. Um, can you give us a little bit more about your background? Did you did you start hunting when you were a kid, or did you do you kind of have a first gen hunter story yourself? How how did you well, get into hunting? Well, um, that question, Ken, has been asked to me many times, and I am from Alabama, Talladega, Alabama, uh, born and raised. And um, are are you a I, uh, are, are you a roll tide guy or war eagle? Well, I am. I, I'm a war. I'm a roll tide guy versus a war eagle because I'm like you know. I'll, I'll, it's like this: when the two are playing each other, I'm for, I'm for Alabama because I'm from Alabama. Sure. When either one is playing somebody else, I'm for either team. So, oh, this is um, that's good. You know, that's a good guy right yeah, there. That's yeah. how I am with because, Iowa and Iowa State. I'm an yeah, I, I'm yeah. an Iowa fan, but if Iowa State's playing somebody else, you know, I'm happy for mm-hmm. them. Right, right, right. That's good. But as far as me hunting, you know, uh, I, I would consider myself a first generation hunter because uh, my daddy did not hunt. Mm-hmm. And as I tell people, you know, when I, you know, when I talk and do speaking engagements and everything, um, it was just about three years ago, maybe two years ago, that they finally stopped asking, where did I come from? Because, you know, my daddy is, he's not an outdoorsman. He, he's sure. a, you know, he does carpentry. He, you know, would take me fishing as a child. And mm-hmm. I bugged him to death when I was 12 to take me squirrel hunting because, you know, I just wanted to do a real right. squirrel hunt. But uh, he took me out. We shot one squirrel he shot it in the hip and i will forget i was about 12 but um i grew up hunting i grew up hunting songbirds like a lot of people do when they mm-hmm. you know don't have access to hunting right not to say that it's the right thing to do 
uh, now that I'm older, but, uh, you know, Blue Jays, Robins, Blackbirds, whatever I can get a hold to to shoot, I would. Mm-hmm. Um, my daddy did teach me, teach me how to shoot at eight. Uh, my family, we learned how to shoot around eight years old. So around eight, okay. uh, he taught me how to shoot. Had a pellet gun, and um, that's that's that was my primary hunting tool. Mm-hmm. So growing up, <laughs> yep. a pellet gun because uh, my daddy wasn't a hunter, didn't know a whole lot about guns. I mean, he had brothers that hunted, but he wasn't a hunter. But uh, that's how I kind of started, and mm-hmm. so uh, you know, kind of you know, taught myself with squirrels. I was a dedicated small game hunter, mainly squirrels, chasing them around the neighborhood. That's awesome. And that's how I kind of started out. Uh, I'll tell you this though, and, and your listeners, I'll tell tell everybody this. I, despite my daddy not being a hunter. Uh, he did try to get me to go hunting with a uh, uh, cousin-in-law of his who was around their age, you know, probably just at the time in his 30s. Sure. Um, I vividly remember turning that offer down multiple times because for me, hunting was not about a group hunt, a bunch of people hunt, like a hunting mm-hmm. party at that time. To me, hunting was a uh, one-on-one kind of thing that you do with your daddy or somebody like that. So uh, I, I remember, and now, now, you know, that I'm older, I kind of regret not taking that opportunity because I would have been so much further along. I did not shoot my first deer until I was 30 years old. Wow. And so it wasn't yeah. for lack of trying because I was trying but making all the wrong decisions, all the sure. wrong mistakes. But had I gone out when I was 12 or 13, I probably would have shot 30 or 40 deer by the time I was 30. So, sure. you know, that's kind of my background and how I got started. Oh, that's cool. I love that first gen hunter story there and absolutely i'd put you i'd put you right in with the the first geners guy who's figuring it out on his own and and the the key part of what you said there you're making so many mistakes that's what it's all about i mean Mm -hmm. when you're a first gen hunter you, you just don't know what you don't know and right um have you noticed that I assume you've probably gone back and hunted some of the same places that you did when mm-hmm. you were when you were first getting into it as an adult and you look at the landscape once you've mm-hmm. once you've learned so much information about the correct way to hunt, you look at mm-hmm. the landscape so much differently than you did oh, when yeah. you were first getting out there you know i I, I remember when I'd go and hunt like public land. I'd always like have this bad habit of kind of hugging the entrance. You know what I mean? Everybody so, does. You like, you like get, Everybody, yeah. Don't get me out of sight of that entrance because I don't know what right. I'm doing and I don't want to get lost out here or something, right, you know? Right, right, right. And, and you just learn. It's like, no, you got to you gotta follow the sign. You got to follow the mm-hmm. food. You got to you gotta look right. where's the best habitat, you know, what, mm-hmm. how to play the wind, all that stuff. And, well, um, yeah, it's just – it's challenging. It's really challenging to, to get into it. It, it is, but I'll tell you, it is, Kent, but I'll tell you, like I tell a lot of people who I mentor and talk to about hunting, it's challenging when you're trying to figure it out by yourself, not having a clue what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But it's 10 times easier when you find a mentor, yes. somebody to teach you how to hunt. Yep. Uh, and I've taken, I mean, I've, I've lost count now. I have to sit down and get a notebook and tally up how many people I've actually introduced to hunting, but uh, physically, like, take them out hunting. Sure, a bunch. yeah. But uh, I tell them, you know, that when you want to go hunting, uh, it can be challenging. Even when I take people out to do the clinics that I do, mm-hmm. um, even for them to try to go out and replicate what I just showed them, they may have an idea, but it's still a lot they don't know. So I tell right. people, hey, look, um, you know, find a mentor. And one thing that we'll probably get into later on in this talk is that uh, I tell them, hey, you know, a lot of black people, because I do focus heavily on the black community. Yes. Getting black people involved. I don't discriminate against whites or Asians or anybody else, but my primary target audience is where the diversity gap lies, you mm-hmm. know, in my community. That's yep. with black people. But I tell them, I said, look, although a lot of y'all want me as your personal mentor, you know, and I have been a personal mentor mm-hmm. for a few, 
I, I always say, you know what, you know, although you may want to go out with a black person, uh, because sometimes they say they feel more comfortable going out into the woods with a black person than a white person. Sure. I tell them, I say, look, you know, do not overlook the opportunities to learn hunting from a white person. Mm-hmm. Because as I always say, well, what's more important, you know, the, the message or the appearance of the messenger? And that mm-hmm. is the message. And so, you know, a, a white point. guy, black guy, you know, Hispanic guy, you know, the, the le- if they're a good hunter and they are, a, I mean, not just somebody who's, you know, running out there shooting the first thing that's, that jumps up and you know, if it's brown, it's down mentality. Mm-hmm. But uh, if they're a good hunter, then the lessons are going to be very, very similar, regardless of what color, because it's not about color um, it, when it comes to hunting. It's about technique and mm-hmm. learning the craft of hunting. So, you know, I've learned uh, a lot from white hunters. I learned a lot from black hunters, but uh, that's what I tell people, you know, go out there, find a mentor to make your job of learning how to hunt 10 times easier. Mm, yeah, that's yeah, that's an excellent message. And and we're definitely going to dive into that and talk about um, the importance of bringing a more diverse, I don't know if audience is the right word, I think uh, just participation, a more diverse mm-hmm. participation into hunting. So not just people, and, and really this is what you're kind of getting at there, not just people who are consuming, you know, content like podcasts or videos right. or, or even reading articles or whatever, um, but actually getting boots on the ground experience, getting there in the first person and, mm-hmm. and taking it in for themselves. And so I think participant is such a, an, an important term that we use there to, to mm-hmm. explain what, Eric's mission is. So we'll, we'll definitely dive into that. Now I am curious though. Uh, so you've done, so you've done a trip to Africa that had to be, yeah. that had to be quite the experience. Um, did, so did you have like, I've never done this. Uh, I've talked to one of, I've had one other guest on the podcast who's done a, a big Africa tour. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when you get there, do you have like, is it like our normal tag system? They'd be like, all right, Eric, you have a tag for um, this, this, and this. We're going to, and then you kind of focus on one of them at a time or, or but like, how does that, how did that play out when you went over to Africa to hunt? Well, um, it, it all depends on the, uh, on the outfitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny, you know, Kent, because a lot of us hunters, whether we're veteran hunters or brand new hunters, we dream of going to Alaska and Africa to hunt. Mm-hmm. I had uh, considered going to Africa, you know, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. Sure. But um, I was contacted by an outfitter over there in South Africa uh, okay. who, you know, by the work that I do. And here's the thing. We'll, let's say, probably, we'll probably talk about this again as we, you know, later on down the road in, in, in an in interview. But sure. sometimes you never know how far your work and your, you know, presence will be seen mm-hmm. and, 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 and impacted by, you know, somebody, in, I guess somebody impacted by it. So, um, my, uh, introduction to South Africa, a hunt, I, I got a, you know, I was ignoring this guy mm-hmm. for like, you know, two or three years. And because here's the thing, and I'm working on an episode now of my hunt, uh, over there in South Africa this past June, a few months ago. But sure. the thing about it is that, you know, in America, we have a, sometimes a closed, narrow minded, I don't know supremacist ideology about other countries and versus ours. Mm. Um, you know, we never really hit anything good about coming out of, out of Africa. So sometimes when we do get contacted out of the blue by somebody saying, Hey, you know, we want you to come to Africa home with us. I'm like, yeah, right. Whatever. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you know, I, I was, here's the thing that was, I was, 
here's, here's how the connection was made with that outfitter over there. And it's the outfitter for you, your listeners is called Mafa Johnny Safaris, M-A-F-O-J-A-N-I Safaris. And, um, you know, being a hunter all my life, you know, being a hunter to some aspect, I would watch television and whenever I would see the African safaris, I would never see a black PH. PH mm. stands for professional hunter. As a black hunter, it's important to, you know, for me, my mission is it's important for other people to see us mm-hmm. and for other people to know our capabilities as hunters. You know, mm-hmm. we're no different than anybody else. Because of our society sometimes here in America, we sometimes, you know, like to discredit other people's abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I was looking as I would watch television. I said, you know, it would be nice to find to see a black PH somewhere. You know, professional hunter. Because when you type in black hunter, you don't, don't see anything. You may see a pair of black hunting boots or something like that, but you never see a yeah. African American yeah. black person hunting. Yeah. So um, I kept, you know, blowing this guy off, blowing this guy off. And so um, he he sent me a picture one day of him there, and I was like, man. He's a he's a black guy. He's an African, like an African African, mm-hmm. and so that immediately piqued my interest. Not that I'm discriminating against anybody else, but that's the rarest of the rarest. Yeah, because ninety nine percent of the uh, PHs over there in, in in Africa on the continent are white. Right. Yeah. Um, the black people you see are oftentimes in the servant roles, the trackers, the skinners, the drivers, that type sure. of stuff. So I wanted to find a black PH. And connect with him and this guy happened to be one so um make a long story short um we talked a little bit and uh he said hey, man i want to invite you over i want to partner with your show you know we you know he's one of the phs he's one of the mm-hmm. managers there mm-hmm. we want to partner with your show and try to get people from america coming over here to our safari because we have an outstanding service outstanding uh, operation so i went over there did a hunt with him and to answer your question about how does it work mm-hmm. when you go over there uh, oftentimes you will have a list It's different uh, safaris have different ways of doing it, but oftentimes you will have a package and with Mafajoni safaris, um, they specialize in tailoring your experience to you. You know, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. You know, so when I came to Eric, what do you want to do? We're not going to just give you this canned hunt and sure. show okay, you get this, this and this. We want to tailor it to you, but they do offer packages where you can shoot, um, I mean, wildebeest, um, warthog. Elon, Cape Buffalo, giraffe, if you want to do zebra, oh, if you man. want to do. I mean, uh, it goes on and on. I think there was 31 different species of game that they had on their wow. uh, 13,000 acre facility. So when you wow. go there, it's based on, you know, you might say, you know, they have packages. They have a, um, a, uh, a limited special package or starter package that goes for $3,200 a person. Mm-hmm. And you get to shoot four animals, a wildebeest or this or warthog or that or impala. So it's a good experience, all inclusive, your, your meals, everything is included in that. So that's how Mafa Johnny does it. And I'm sure that's how a lot of other people do it. They have a package. Sure. But, uh, you know, you can shoot. Here's the thing. Um, it's different for its limits. There's not a limit. If you want to go and pay to shoot, you know, six Impala, then you can shoot six Impala. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it was a great experience. It was it was a good experience and one I never will forget. I'm going back again in June. Awesome. Uh, if anybody, if any of your listeners are interested, they can contact me. I'll leave my information with you here after the interview. Sure. But uh, I highly, highly recommend Mafa Johnny Safaris. Oh, that's cool. So, so what'd you end up uh, tagging while you're over there? Well, I was going to do a promo uh, video to help get the word out about the safari. So I shot a uh, wildebeest, I shot an impala, and I shot a 
shot an Apollo ram and an Apollo U, which is a doe. And so I shot those three animals uh, when that I was. That is cool. What was it like being by that wildebeest? Those things just seem so intimidating. I mean, they're, they're, they're huge. They're, they're, they're like yeah. this giant muscle with, you know, <laughs> super sharp horns on the front of them. Yeah, they, 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 they are herd animals. So you never will see just one. They can come <laughs> in five, six, 15 at a time. And, <laughs> um, we were, it, it was a good hunt. It was a good hunt because there, here's the, here's the thing for your uh, listeners to, to understand. Hunting in America nowadays is a lot different than how it used to be. Sure. Uh, it's completely different than hunting in South Africa. In America right now, you know, we say we go on a hunt and we go, you know, dress up, dress up in camouflage, go into a warm, heated shoot house <laughs> overlooking a bean field or yeah. a, 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 a waterway or something. And we shoot a deer. We say we went hunting. Yeah. There, they don't do that. It's stalking. And so what they do, and they are expert trackers and expert i mean i'm a good hunter mm -hmm. i will put my skills up against anybody but i felt like a like, like a preschooler over there trying to find game and then whoa, whoa, there's the wildebeest i'm where i don't see nothing where <laughs> you know, there's your pilot get, get on the sticks where i don't see it and so i was feeling pretty doggone you know am, uh, amateurish yeah. over there and being the good hunter that i am you know you know being very good but i'm over in a different environment we're looking for different things Yep. So uh, they're very good. So what they do is, you know, based on what ammo you want, they, they ride around in the Baki, is what they call it, Baki. It's a mm -hmm. pickup truck, you know, open bed in the back with seats sure. for the hunters. But they call it a, a Baki okay. versus a pickup. So you ride around in the Baki and um, they look for tracks. So the trackers and, you know, guys and PhDs, they're looking at the sandy, you know, at the roads, because mainly sand and, and, you know, soft dirt. You can mm -hmm. easily see the tracks. And so once they pick up track, they're either scanning the, 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 the bush veil. They call it the veil. They don't call it the woods. It's the veil. Okay. are scanning the veil or they're looking at tracks along the road. Once they find the track of an animal that you're looking for, they'll get out, you know, see how fresh it is, and then they'll start stalking behind the animal. And so it's pretty, it's pretty you know, different than how we hunt here in America. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is crazy, man. That's that's cool though. That and yeah. uh, that stretches you as a hunter to get put into those different those different uh, scenarios. And mm -hmm. and uh, I got a little, just a, not near to that level, but a little taste of that this spring when I branched out from Iowa in the Midwest here and went out to Montana and hunted, uh, did spot and stock uh, black bear hunt. And okay. It, as I tell everyone, you know, I felt like I gained. 10 years of hunting experience just by being put into that different environment of, man, you gotta, you gotta look for, like you're saying, you gotta look for tracks, gotta look for scat, right. gotta look for right. maybe, uh, you know, tree that's been scratched up and, mm -hmm. you know, just a log that's been rolled right. over rock and turned over. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Looking for anything that says there might be any, and you do that a little bit with deer. I mean, you're looking for rubs and mm -hmm. scrapes and, and so forth, but in droppings and tracks, but, but not to that level and not to that vast of a area either, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. just putting yourself, immersing yourself in those drastically different circumstances I think grows us and which is incredibly important. I think for first gen hunters to hear because oh, yeah. that's what we're looking for, right? We we're starting right. behind the eight ball, so to speak, you know, we're, <laughs> you know, we we're in the hole when it comes to experience right. for a lot of other people. So how do we mat, you know, multiply that, that time mm -hmm. to make it so that we have it. So yeah, I think going into and feeling, I like that word you use feeling a little amateurish, getting humbled yeah. a little bit is good for <laughs> oh, us. Yeah. 
that's when you yeah. that's when you're willing to dig down and and learn you know because you that's your only choice right. if you're going to be successful right. and one thing i'll say too is that you mentioned something earlier about you know when you introduced me you mentioned i was kind of like a generalist versus a specialist um i prefer it that way because mm-hmm. generalists are, are are better all around hunters yeah. than a specialist yeah. i call you know i'm working on something called you know being a one-trick pony and mm-hmm. um where i'm going to talk about you know the importance of being you know well-versed in different firearms hunting those types of things mm-hmm. and um it's easy for a lot of people to become a one-trick pony mm-hmm. um now it's nothing wrong with if you just absolutely love squirrel hunting i've met people i, I did a hunt with a guy down in mississippi who just sent me um a text yesterday with this little tree and feist that's a three-time mm-hmm. what is it, a three triple champion three-time world <laughs> oh, champion wow he's a tough little dog about maybe 18 pounds but he's tough on squirrels and he kicks butt and takes names <laughs> and that guy his, his, his owner used to hunt deer and hogs and other stuff but he has got you know we're talking about how your dog kind of gets you into certain things yep he has those guys got into those feists and you know it's different for for, for the first time generation hunter that's looking that's listening I would say that um, you will wake up to a new life when you start hunting with a hunting dog versus mm-hmm. hunting by yourself. A dog will, will will make you 10 times more successful because they can hear, see, and smell things that we can mm-hmm. only dream of. Yeah. So when Owen, mm-hmm, when Owen got that tree in fights, he was in, you know, he was uh, really, really getting into it. So now all he does is hunt squirrel. He has one of his dogs. He has two. He has uh, P. Row and he has Rue. That's and cool. so Rue is a female. P. Row is the, um, the male. But, um, you know, so... Going back to the being a generous, I encourage all hunters to experience multiple types of hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- one of my mentees who is doing extremely well today um, is Darrell Smith uh, with the um, Gun Dog Notebook. I think okay. he called it Sporting Life Notebook. Now, Sporting Life Notebook. Um, Darrell, uh, when I met, and I talk about him all the time. I mean, he he's my best example of what can happen when you introduce an adult to hunting versus a child. Sure. Darrell uh, had never hunted in his life. Uh, I took him out on a quail hunt because upland bird hunts are easy to do. Mm-hmm. You can guarantee that the person will see or shoot something, right. at least see something. Right. And so uh, I took him on those hunts. I took him on a duck hunt out to Kansas, the same place I told you about where I had that beautiful day. Mm-hmm. Um, they also took him on a deer hunt. On the duck hunt, he shot a coot. Uh, but then he messed around and got into some a covey of wild quail with his dog. <laughs> and... He had some fun with that. Took him on a deer hunt. We didn't get any anything. Uh, so he kind of then he spent his 26th, 25th, and 20, 26th and 27th birthday with me out in the quail field um, going on a hunt with me. So That's he awesome. gravitated toward the quail side. But I tell people that, you know, you become, you know, we should be, in my mind, like the cur, you know, whether it be a Catahoula cur or a blackmouth cur or an Airedale terrier, which makes mm-hmm. my next dog. We should be versatile, be able to go out and hunt anything because that's what's going to make you. You can be a subject matter expert in one little lane, but when you can go out and be semi-experts in five or six different lanes when it comes to hunting, that's what's going to make you more valuable. Well, that's what's going to increase your knowledge and help, you know, allow you to survive. Because what if you go into yeah. one area to hunt and there's no quail? What are you going to eat? You know, yeah. <laughs> how are you going to find, you know, hog sign, bear sign, yeah. you know, deer sign, turkey sign? So. It's good to be a, a, a jack of all trades when it comes to hunting. Same thing for his weaponry, bow, spear. I, I know I hunt bow, spear, black powder rifle, handgun, uh, shotgun, you know, regular centerfire rifle, bow and arrow. Do it all. Yeah. That way you are tremendously versatile in your skills as a hunter. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point you made there. And and yeah, I I mean, I agree with all of it. I think I think uh it's uh, even for even for first gen hunters, I think it's probably even more important because again, going with this theme of we don't know what we don't know until we try it. And you might think that you really love uh we'll say well, let's go back to the example quail hunting. You might think you really love quail hunting. Well, then you go duck hunting and you find out, wow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That this is I what, love this is what I love doing or you go bear hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that mm-hmm. kind of happened to me. Um working on an article right now. Um uh, and the, the title I think is going to be something along the lines of an unexpected dream. You know, I went bear hunting because uh, I was a teacher at the time and w- you don't have any time off during hunting season when you're a teacher, but during, right. during the summer, you know, now you got, that's when all your time off is. And, uh, that's when spring bear season was, you know, it was in mm-hmm. late May and early June. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, so it's like, well, this is kind of what I'm available to do. I, you know, I don't have anything right. against hunting a bear. I'd kind of like to hunt a bear. Well, I came out of that like, mm-hmm. wow, I can see why people really get into bear hunting and I can't wait to go again. You know, I, I just, uh, I had a dream about it this week that I was, <laughs> that I was bear hunting again, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, I would have never known unless I, you know, had that, Gen- that generalist attitude of yeah i want right. to i want to hunt them all but right. yeah yeah those are those are those are really great points now uh we need a little taste what was going on with the alaska hunt i saw i think i saw a video clip of you flying in somewhere oh, in, in a little yeah. bush plane yeah. um in alaska what were you up there to hunt that was in 2015 and i was going up to the tundra to hunt caribou Okay. So I was, that was a, there was a fly in hunt uh, that I did where, um, it's a self-guided hunt. Basically you pay the outfitter to fly you out there and pick you up. Everything <laughs> oh, that happens in man. the union is, is, is up to you. So, you That's know, hardcore, that, man. It, it's, well, you know, as a hunter, at least with me, I like to challenge myself and push yeah. myself. Yeah. Um, I went up there with two other, you know, junior hunters, you know, semi-experienced hunters. And, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good, gut check mm-hmm. uh, my plan was to go up there again a couple of years ago and just you know spend a week alone by myself up there and i probably still do that but um you know for me and what i do i have to know that i'm tough enough to hang in just about any situation right so um a lot of times you know i'd always oftentimes tell people like you know you mentioned hunting bear i love hunting bear i love eating bear even better you know even yeah, more right yep. bear is delicious yeah it is. Um, it well, is. people may not know that but you know, oftentimes you can tell the courage and the toughness of a hunter by what they hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people, you know, can't even think of being out in the woods at two and three o'clock in the morning, running behind a black and tan or a blue tick coon hound chasing coons. Yeah. Well, because to them, that's outside their comfort zone. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people can't imagine. You mentioned earlier when you go out to public land, you stay close to the road, close to the gate, the entrance point. Yep. Some people can't imagine being a mile back into a place that mm-hmm. they never have been where there's snakes, bears, you know, mountain lion or whatever. Um, right. So, you know, you, you can oftentimes get a good judge of a person's grit and mm-hmm. toughness by what they hunt. Yeah. Uh, hunting birds, that's cool. I love hunting birds. But hunting birds and hunting bear are two totally different mm-hmm. things. Take two totally different mindsets. Yep. Because bear hunting can be, I mean, it can be dangerous. Um, it can oh, be dangerous yeah. at, at sometimes. So, you know, it, not everybody has it in them to be a bear hunter. Not everybody in it has it in them to go out and hunt halls with a spear or with a knife yeah. like I've done. 
So, um, you know, you just have to, you know, keep with me. I like to kind of keep pushing myself till I find, I guess, my breaking point. So far, yeah. I haven't found that yet. Although I froze pretty good up in Alaska back then. I went to Alaska again a uh, year before last. I was up there hunting bear. Shot okay. a bear up there on public land. Shot another one there. And that's a two and a half hour hike up a mountain. You know, get to the top. It was like bear running around left and right. Oh, that's uh, awesome. You know, yeah, yeah. Shot one. And, you know, it was cold, rainy. But, you know, I'm retired from the Army as a combat arms guy. So, you know, me being a hunter plus a combat arms guy, um, you know, three-time combat veteran. Yeah. And, you know, my, my motto is that, hey, you have to be tougher than mm-hmm. what you're pursuing. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for your service, too, as a veteran. Service oh, yeah. to our country. Hey, no that's, problem. No that's, problem, Kent. That's, that's, you know, when when you talk about being in those dangerous situations, what I like about it is your senses are all alive, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you you don't know what's laying around the corner there. Right, and right. You know, I remember uh, when we were on a bear hunt, we were in a, we were in a, um, in a grizzly area and we were in a, we had hiked up to a level and you could, I'm sure you can relate to this with your experience. You see different types of scat depending on the elevation mm-hmm. you're at. You know, you like start down the mm-hmm. low area and there, you know, there's whitetail scat everywhere. Like deer, right. And then you get up and now you're into like the moose scat Mm -hmm. and uh which moose a lot of people don't realize moose aren't to be trifled with you know moose can kill you just as fast as a grizzly they'll bury in the ground but uh Mm -hmm. then you get up to like uh the mountain lion and yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah then you get up to like the mountain lion and bear and Mm -hmm. and elk scat Mm -hmm. and you know, you're up there and it's like, man, there's all these critters around. I can't see mm-hmm. them. There probably a few of them are looking right at me, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, you just, it's a fun feeling to know that, Hey, it I'm is. not on the top of the food chain here and I better, I better uh, be able to depend on what I have physically and what I've mm-hmm. chosen. And hopefully I chose wisely in the gear that I, I came into this area with to be able to right. handle what nature, um, mm-hmm doles out to me but mm-hmm. uh i think that that is an incredibly powerful experience for for people to have and one that i you know i wish everyone every one of the mm-hmm. listeners here could have at some point you know where they they're in that situation even if you don't end up hunting maybe somebody's listening like, yeah i don't know if i'm ever gonna hunt well go camp in a situation like that sometime you know and mm-hmm. and you it's a it's a uh obviously don't do anything dumb you know don't you know, a big part of that is being wise with right, how you do right. it, but being smart. Yep. <laughs> but it's, it's good. I think it's good for us to, to feel a little bit of, you know, discomfort with, with our mm-hmm. surroundings and try and become comfortable yeah. in that situation though, working through that discomfort go. to become comfortable. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, did, were you able to tag a caribou on your, your, I, I did not when I went, the other two hunters did. Uh, part of, you know, my brand, non-typical outdoorsman and, and my whole approach towards things is mm-hmm. doing things differently. And I went to Alaska on the tundra with a 12 gauge slug gun, determined to get a, uh, caribou with a 12 gauge slug gun. Wow. <laughs> um, that, that, that was an interesting hunt. The whole experience, uh, it happened back in 2015. Um, the hunt was kind of, kind of jacked up about, cause I'll put it like this. It's crucial to know who you're taking with you when you do a hunt. Mm-hmm. It's even more crucial to know who you're taking with you when you're hunting in tough, harsh 
conditions. Yes. Because people's weaknesses will quickly surface, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one young lady went on a hunt. Uh, she was a hunter. She was a shooter, not a hunter. There's a, there's a difference between yes. the two. Yep. Uh, she was a shooter. Um, shoot game. Somebody else drag it out, court it for. She take Facebook pictures and, you know, she's a hunter. <laughs> but she's a shooter. So she uh, went with us. Another guy went with us. And uh, she made the hunt uncomfortable for everybody because she got out there and quickly realized, you know, what did I get myself into? Mm-hmm. So she got to, um, I mean, each one of them got a nice caribou. Um, I, while we was field dressing those two caribou, um, I had my 12 gauge slug on there cause there were grizzly in the area. We saw grizzly on the way up. We saw grizzly when the plane dropped us off. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So I had my 12 gauge slug on out there and there was a, um, a young caribou that came up, you know, antlers probably about maybe 18 inches long, uh, coming out. Sure. And he has hung around for a while, like 50 yards, just hanging around. And, um, you know, I started shooting, but I said, oh, it's only like day one in a hunt. I may get a, something else. And so I went out and uh, had, opp- I never did get an opportunity to get within 150 yards of a caribou. Sure. Um, you know, they look like they're just walking slow, but as many people have hunted caribou mm. and get up there, they can cover a lot of distance, you know, yeah, walking at that I've spot. heard they're notorious for that. They can, they oh, can yeah. oh, be yeah. miles away in no time. Yeah. yeah. So. I didn't get a shot. Uh, I was when I think the closest I got to one was 330 yards. Um, didn't get it, but I'll go back again and redeem myself here in the next couple of years or so. Yeah, no, that's cool. It's it's neat that you put that extra. It's almost like taking a. That's like the traditional archery version of uh, of long gun hunting there. Yeah, yeah. yourself to, oh, yeah. to a slug gun. No, that's that's yeah. cool. I love a slug gun. Yep. Yeah. Well, and and the fact that your group came home with two that shows you guys were doing some stuff right. And that's mm-hmm. how it was for my bear hunt too. Um, I missed my shot. I had a, a 350 yard shot and I uh, missed, uh, but oh, man. a couple hours later, um, my buddy, he, uh, he bagged one. So, and okay. that was, that was, that was, you know, you can't say it's just as rewarding because, of course, everyone goes there with the hope of getting one for themselves. But it right. was, it was, right. Absolutely. it was plenty rewarding. You know, I, I yeah. felt, yeah. I felt something. satisfied to have gotten into the position to, to you know, do it, take a shot. a shot, yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, as I've described it before, you know, and you can probably relate to this too, Eric. When you're a first gen hunter, you're surrounded. Your closest relationships are people that don't hunt a lot of times, yeah. you know, yeah. and you, the people you grew up with, your, your parents, your, your siblings, mm-hmm. your, your cousins, whoever, you know, they, they, not that they're anti hunting, you know, or like, what are you doing? That's wrong. You know, mm-hmm. not, not that, mm-hmm. but they don't have just like you didn't have the knowledge when you were getting into it. They don't have the knowledge about hunting and they don't right. realize when Eric goes to, to, Alaska and he doesn't come back with a caribou, they don't realize that, well, actually Eric got within 330 yards of a caribou in order to do that. in the type of landscape that he was in, Eric had to get 550 things, right? He just didn't Mm -hmm. get the 551st thing, right? You know what I mean? It's like 
if if you were to take a test and have 551 questions on it and somebody got a 5 got 550 of the problems right and just didn't get the 551st problem right you wouldn't mm-hmm. be like wow that was whoa, what a letdown right, you right. know it's like but when right. you're hunting you understand it you understand how hard it was to get right. those 500 to make 550 mm-hmm. correct decisions right. to get right. into that to get into that point you know so it's so hard when when you come back from a trip like that and you're like yeah i didn't get anything you know in your heart like but i have all the satisfaction from the trip because i got all of these other things i nailed it Mm -hmm. i just didn't get that one part right right and i know with the caribou that was shot they were they were shot we was getting ready to go out we got out of the tent uh we was getting ready to go out uh to scout um and again that, that that girl that was on the hunt with us um you know we was going to walk a mile out just in the tundra just to see if we can find a herd. Mm-hmm. And she's like, a mile, why we got to walk so far? You know, that kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, what doing that discussion, two carol, two bulls walked within, I think maybe 200 yards of us. When you add an open space, 200 yards look fairly close. Right. You yeah. can see out yeah. to a thousand yards, 200 <laughs> looks real close. So they made right. their shot at about maybe 180 yards. Uh, they both made their shots, but yeah, those, they, those came in close. And even with that 330 yard shot where I was at, had I had my 270, oh, um, yeah. that would have been a dead, it was a big bull. That would have been a dead bull. But, uh, the key thing is with me, you know, you do have to get things right. And the key thing is knowing that, you know, knowing when to shoot, when not to shoot. Sometimes people want to be so successful to get something yep. that they will risk a shot. And there's no way in the world I would have, you know, tried to lob a, a 600 grain slug right. that I was shooting out there, 300 some yards to hit a, to hit a caribou. Right. So, um, you know, yeah, I did that's... feel very, very confident against a grizzly attack with that 600 grain slug. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Putting out 4,000 foot pounds of muzzle engine. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it wasn't the best for, you know, long range shooting. So I have, you know, replayed that, you know, scenario and that scene in my head for the last, you know, six or seven years. Mm-hmm. And, when I go back, I'll probably, um, you know, carry both a rifle and a shotgun. And if I can't yeah. get within, you know, slug range, uh, within rifle slug range, then I'll just go and, you know, use my 270, which yeah. I used in Africa. And that 270, you know, I know, you know, people who are new hunters, they kind of get bombarded by what calibers to get. But, um, you know, I'll tell people, hey, keep it simple. You know, 270, 30 out 6, 30, mm-hmm. 30, 308, you know, those will get done. Yeah. Whatever you need to kill, it can get it done. Yep. Period. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Yep. I, yeah. I, um, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, man. The, the, it's impressive that you were even in that position to, to be there. And no doubt if you had the, had a longer ranged, uh, weapon there and no doubt you made the right decision too, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. and, and you know, if you are just brand new to hunting, try and think of that. I mean, there's, there's a, this hard balance with hunting, right? Uh, wasn't it Michael Jordan who said you miss 100% of the shots you never take. So like, there is that part yeah. of it, you know, you do have to at some point pull the trigger and, uh, but you know, in your mind, try and calculate those odds out. Like Eric said, if he had lobbed a slug at that, that, th- that slug would have been tumbling by the point, mm-hmm. by that <laughs> point, you know, it would have been going end over end or something. It would have, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't have, uh, been an ethical shot to, to, right try and push that big of a piece of metal out that far mm-hmm. so it made sense not to take that shot but maybe if that if that caribou was half that distance you know bring it to oh, yeah. oh, 150 yeah. yards or something absolutely a, that's yeah. worth taking a right. taking a shot there i mean and if it's stopped and not moving and all that but right. yeah. but right. 
you gotta you gotta kind of know what that that is and i'll tell you where that's the hardest is pheasant and quail hunting you know as they're, fl- as they're flushing away from you it's like eh is that you know it'd be real easy to th- just hit a bird with a couple pellets and you know if it's out too far but you also got to get that experience of getting the gun up getting a shot off and so practice with clay pigeons and and you know right. like doing true like skeet practice not just stationary you know all right, right. go ahead throw it into the same spot every time and i'll be <laughs> yeah. i'll have yeah, the gun up at my shoulder already waiting for it you don't yeah. get a lot of those but no that's right that's all all good points well hey let's uh let's talk a little bit about your mission here you kind of previewed that a little bit before i love the deep connection to mentoring i definitely agree um that the challenge of getting into hunting is is lessened when you have someone to share that burden with and uh, uh mentorship is a wonderful side of hunting that um helped me out i'm sure uh helped you out in some ways as well mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. at times uh it doesn't necessarily mean um that this person is taking you hunting every time they go but um i think if you can you know get brought along at least a few times that makes a lot of a lot of a difference and if you can then right. once you've learned kind of pass it on take a few more people yourself give them some opportunities again like eric was saying you need to be able to trust who you're going with um uh if you sense that somebody isn't going to be safe to be with um, they just aren't mindful enough about gun safety or or something like that don't bring them but as long as you feel they're trustworthy enough, they can handle it. Um, yeah, reach out and 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 try and try and uh, give them a hand when you can. You know, it's it's um, a, a really important part of passing it on is actually having that experience with with somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh-huh. But specifically. You're targeting uh, folks who, like you said, with the example of the professional hunter uh, on the TV screen, people that we just don't see in the hunting community. And um, that's not good. It's not healthy to to see entire groups of people left out of -hmm. of not just hunting, but but anything good. Right. You know, we need to make sure that the the resources are there to help every group of people alive that want to be participating in something that they're able to get into that. And so that's really been your mission. In fact, I have your mission uh, uh, written down here, Eric. I'm going to go ahead and, and read this. So this is off of Eric's uh, website. Uh, let me give you that website right now. That is nontypicaloutdoorsman.com. And on that website, you will see uh, this mission. Uh, I think it's uh, either on the homepage or or uh, you can click a tab, the about tab or something like that. But you'll find this mission. Uh, first of all, I like this tagline. Welcome to non-typical outdoorsman TV, the most diverse outdoor show on the planet. And then here's the, here's the mission. The mission of non-typical outdoorsman TV is to bring you a diverse 
inclusive, and entertaining outdoor television channel. One that everyone can relate to and enjoy. If you are looking for commercialized, unrealistic hunting shows, you have come to the wrong place. I keep it 100% real and unscripted. And on on non-typical outdoorsman TV, you will see authentic and affordable, love that, entertainment along with hunts that are within the reach of the average working class American. The focus is not on trophy hunting, exotic lands, or high dollar equipment. The focus here is on having fun, enjoying the good old outdoors, Southern style, I like that, and increasing the racial diversity among America's hunters and outdoorsmen. That right. is awesome. And and uh, I think it sums up with what we've heard so far in the conversation and mm-hmm. uh, really your heart for, for – uh, the community to, to see more uh, specifically black hunters uh, in the, in the hunting uh, sphere. So how did you, like, when did you, so first of all, you know, I feel like we need to, we need to like have the, the, the conversation here that everyone's probably for, for people feel on edge when this conversation comes up between a white guy and an African-American guy. Um, because I can't, I can't, fully relate to your circumstances impossible because I haven't lived in your, in your circumstance. And, uh-huh. uh, I haven't had to go through the same circumstance of when I turn on any kind of hunting show, there's always a white guy there. There's always somebody who, oh, yeah. who looks like me, who looks probably has a somewhat similar, you know, upbringing to me, you know, all that, right. He's, he, that's not something that I, that I've experienced. So, but here's also something that I think a lot of white people struggle with myself included on this is we see this problem because I think it is a problem that we don't have, we don't have all parts of our communities represented, uh, in an activity. In this case, you know, you and I love hunting just as much as the other person loves it. And we, we don't see a lot of black people, uh, included there for, for, you know, all kinds of different reasons. I'm sure that are, you know, have very sad historic, uh, uh, meanings behind them in some cases and in other cases, um, They've just been left out, but, um, uh, when, when I look at wanting to be, to like help with this situation, I think there's a dangerous pitfall that not just me as a white person, but other white people who are wanting to, to help out with these types of issues. One that we can get into is. It's hard to describe. It's hard to put your finger on. Yeah, you know, I probably sound like I'm dancing all over the place right now. I'm trying, no, no, I'm no, trying, no. trying to, trying to pin down what, what the issue is. And have you ever been in a situation where, um, so I'm, I'm not just asking Eric here, but everyone listening in, where you have somebody who is not a English speaker as their first language, like the English is a second language to them. And you can tell they maybe have a thick accent. Maybe their their sentences are more like fragments, you know, where they're getting like 
the just the bare bones idea across and you get this idea okay this person does not speak english as a first language and so what a lot of people subconsciously end up doing is they start talking to this person like they're talking to their 95 year old great grandmother they start like yeah exactly they start like (laughs) shouting it out slowing it way down and they're not trying to be they're not trying to be insulting but they're being annoying <laughs> and maybe in some cases a little bit insulting this this person isn't they're not they don't have some kind of impairment here that they, they're right. just they just don't speak english as their first language so shouting it out being super loud isn't helping and so i think mm-hmm. sometimes people do this when you know when a, a a white person like myself says you know what there there aren't a lot of african american uh hunters out here um there aren't a lot of Hispanic hunters. There's not a lot of Asian hunters because I think we could probably say the same about about those those uh, groups right, of people, right. those communities as well. And and uh, so what we do is we almost get into this like I'm ta- I'm I'm hel- I'm helping the old lady across the street here. How do I how do I be coddling? How do I you know? And it's almost insulting and annoying when you really think about it. Uh, when when people do that, and so I'm trying very hard to not do that. But then it's almost like I get paralyzed, like analysis by or paralysis by analysis, right? Where it's like, well, I guess I can't do anything. So I hope they just figure it out and i hope more <laughs> african american people can can get into to hunting i mean right. is this a real do you, do you do you sense this situation eric being... parts of it parts okay of it. Here, 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 i i was i've been doing what i'm what i'm doing before it became popular right now everybody and their great grandmother uh is talking about r3 everybody mm-hmm. and their great grandmother mm-hmm. and their great uncle is talking about you know diversity equity inclusion I've been on the grind doing what I'm doing since 2010, mm-hmm. uh, long before people even wanted to have the conversation about, you know, getting more diversity. It was around, but uh, it was just lip service for the most part. So mm-hmm. I, you know, the, 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 and I've, the, the topic you're asking about, like, why is it what can be done? You know, the difference between, you know, uh, look at the conversation with the white person, and the black person. I would, I would say first that, um, you know, black and white people, Black and white hunters should be comfortable talking to each other. Mm. Um, just because who I am, I will talk with anybody about anything. Um, you know, I'm confident in, in who I am and what I can do, and in, in, in you know, just me. So right. I'm not intimidated by anything or anybody. So I can have those tough conversations. However, uh, when it comes to hunting in the outdoors and increasing the racial diversity, as I always say, and I specifically say racial diversity. I know some mm-hmm. people have a problem with the R word, race. Who don't say racial? Why not? Sure. Yeah. Because right. A lot of stuff in our society is based on race. Um, from recruitment in the army, we know I was I was, I, was in, I had a recruiting company when I was in the army as a captain back in the day, mm-hmm. and we had a quota for certain minority groups to make sure that we, you know, had enough you know diversity in the military. Sure, but um, you know when it comes to hunting, let's face it, hunting has been a predominantly white male sport and portrayed as a white male sport, I should say, mm-hmm. since day one. Uh, I'm doing some research now on, on a project that I'm working on, and uh, I'm researching black hunters. And it's tough, Kent, just to find historical data of black hunters mm-hmm. sometimes because historically, we as black people, black outdoorsmen, have been left out of the picture. Now, let's go back to the Antebellum South days, back in those mm-hmm. days where uh, you had a lot of uh, hunting plantations, you had a lot of uh, you know, hunting dogs and you know hunting going on. 
Um, what a lot of people may not realize is that in those days, a lot of the people doing those activities, running the hunts, you know, taking care of the horses, training the dogs, um, you know, being the guides, um, they were black people. Mm. So, you know, but the image has always been, I think back, you know, I'm old enough now, Kent, to where I'm dangerous and probably, you know, <laughs> I, I got to watch myself because I come from an era to where I saw no diversity or strong reluctance for inclusion. And now things are starting to change a little. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that, you know, there's no effort. There's none of this because there is now. But, um, you know, black people have been left out. Unless there was uh, somebody famous and well connected to a white person, they were mm -hmm. probably just history just forgot about them. Mm -hmm. There's a person right now, we talked about bears earlier in bear hunting. There's a person right now that few people probably have heard of by the name of Hope Collier. Yep. And I've taught about, I've talked about his name and, 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 and you know, went to his grave <laughs> in Mississippi. That's There's awesome. a picture right there at his grave, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm working on a project, but the thing, yeah, it is because I read the book about him and most people don't know how the teddy bear started. If they do the history with Tote Collier, his actions led to the teddy bear, mm -hmm. you know, uh, coming about. But uh, he, he was he was a very, very famous, one of the best, if not the best, bear hunter in yeah, the South. Yeah, possibly. Um, I, I heard recently he may have killed more black bears than even Daniel Boone, which is, oh yeah, oh yeah. is crazy. Yeah. So because you talk about that specialized, his specialty was bear hunting. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, we, you have to look hard sometimes to find the history as a black person as to where your ancestors and where people like you, you know, were documented, you know, doing things that we love to do, such as hunting. So um, now with, 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 I guess, and I'll oftentimes say it, um, you know, <laughs> hope that your readers or your viewers don't, don't, don't get upset, you know, don't really bother me if they do, because the truth is the truth. And hey, people really that's not, what we want to hear. You know, we want to hear the truth. Right? I told you I keep it real. <laughs> so yeah, we like um, that. people did not, start coming on board seriously with diversity and inclusion until after the murder of George Floyd. Mm. That was a wake up call or racial awakening mm -hmm. in America. After that, it caused a lot of people, you know, to see this man get choked out right there on national television, you know, didn't do anything worthy of getting died and getting killed. But to see that, that, that disgrace, mm -hmm. you know, happen, mm -hmm. it caused a lot of white people to kind of, you know, open both eyes mm -hmm. because, you know, here's the thing. I'm a, I'm not a racist guy at all, Kent. Um, I can be very stern with both sides, black and white, about what needs sure. to happen. Some of the problems that we have, but I'm not a racist guy at all by any means. And I know that there are a lot of white people who, as you mentioned earlier, they do see an issue, they do see a problem, they want to say something. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes by saying something, they run the same risk of getting discriminated against or uh, attacked or whatever as as, as a minority. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to hunting, I think that we as outdoorsmen, we as hunters, uh, can do a lot more, a lot better. I've always advocated that blacks, when it comes to getting more black people involved, blacks should play a bigger role. Black hunters and outdoorsmen should play a bigger role in tote a heavier load because it's our responsibility. Just mm -hmm. like I talked about with uh, the Navajo, I, I used an example one time. Um, I wrote on LinkedIn, I wrote a kind of like a rant slash article because sometimes, you know, um, you get tired of the guests, you know, well, we didn't know, well, no, we're not interested in. Yet they're saying one thing, the industry is saying one thing about what they want. You have someone like me who's here, who's delivering the, the, what they say they want, yet nobody mm -hmm. wants to support them. That's mm -hmm. a whole other interview within itself. But mm -hmm. when it comes to, um, you know, I talk, in the article, I talked about whose responsibility is it 
to teach the Navajo language to the Navajo tribe? Is it white America or is it the Navajo people? Most people would agree that it's the Navajo people because that's their tribe, that's their language, it's their responsibility to keep their tradition, their culture going on. It's nobody else's. But when it comes to hunting, though, uh, we have to look at it. Hunting is, uh, dom- is a sport that's dominated by, you know, white people. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's a bad thing or anything like that, but we just have to face it. Just like sports is dominated by black people, football, basketball. So when it comes to doing more, um, I would say that, you know, we have to have to, we have to have people like myself and others who are front runners in doing what we do for the outdoor mentor and the consultant with different mm-hmm. agencies. We, we, we have to be out front to you know, bring in our community. Um, I, that's not what we're accustomed to seeing here in America. In America, historically, uh, we have been accustomed to seeing um, white people bringing, you know, the solution. Mm. Like Long Ranger riding in on his white horse, <laughs> saving the day. Like yeah. Star Trek going to a world far away, saving the day. That doesn't really work uh, yeah. because there's a lot of different variables that, you know, neither I or you can really control as to why people don't hunt. You ask, you know, why is it that, you know, a lot of, there's not a lot of black people out there. One, and I'm all about this, and that is seeing is believing. I'm all about representation, walking mm. the walk, showing and proving what we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, to some people, to some white people outdoorsmen, that's a threat because it goes against everything they've been taught, everything mm. that they see. Because the, the thing I tell a lot of people, the industry and people that, I, that uh, hired me to come on and work with them to get more diversity is that the beauty of me is that I see, I mean, I haven't always been a grown man. I've been a five-year-old, 10-year-old, you know, when I started shooting, I was eight years old, Lo- read every hunting book, every gun book, mm. you know, Daniel Boone, read all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, never saw anybody who looked like me. Mm. So I know how it looks from the other side. As a white person, a white person, a white child can turn on TV from the age of two, watch TV, hunt shows all their life, and see 99% of the people look just like them. Mm-hmm. So that sends a message in itself that, hey, we belong. This is what we do. I have this desire to do this activity. I am bombarded by magazines, you know, podcasts, television, you know, advertisements with everybody looking like me. Mm-hmm. So sometimes what that does is that that will send a non-welcoming or non-inclusive message to the minority community. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I have heard this a thousand times and I know my, my daddy, you know, did his best to talk me out of hunting. You know, I want to do this if I was you. No, don't go out there with them people. Don't do this. And so when I talk to my target audience, I already know the objections that they're going to have. So, um, you know, there's a lot that we can do, you know, uh, black, white or whoever, because hunting like I say, is an activity mm-hmm. and it doesn't really matter what color you are. Sometimes, however, the appearance of the messenger does matter because I can go and stand before a group of people. Like right now, I do hunts. I put together hunts uh, all across the country. I never have a problem. Well, rarely, if ever, do I have a problem filling the hunts. With, with, with people of color. Mm. There are dozens and upon dozens of white organizations that attempt to do the same thing and are frustrated that they cannot get a, you know, more than one or two black people to come out. Mm. And so sometimes it's in the delivery. But uh, I would say that, you know, to, to, to do this, you know, what we're trying to do because the outdoors, you know, conservation field prospers and does better if all of us involved, we get more people involved. Um, so, you know, forming partnerships. Um, but sometimes people you know, have to realize uh, that the way we've done things in the past, the way, you know, who we have out front promoting the message, mm. uh, doing the recruitment, it matters sometimes. Definitely. 
Definitely. Yeah, that's that is a great way to to state all that. That and and we can't hear a message like that coming from somebody uh who's who's been in this position um and be offended by that because it's right the way you perceive it is the way you perceive it, right? Who right. who right. are we to write that narrative for you? You know, right. as right. as being a for lack of a better term, an outsider to your circumstance, you know, mm-hmm. that's that. And I think that's where a lot of people get hung up and it's just, it doesn't make sense to get hung up in that yeah. way. And so, um, I, I think you, I think you summed that up just, just beautifully there. Very, very, uh, powerful way of, of stating that. So I'll say one more thing if oh, I can, yeah, yeah. uh, cause this is, cause this is something that people also ask. And they ask sometimes, what are the obstacles standing in the way of, uh, you know, progress? Mm-hmm. And I tell people that, you know, the American society, we, we have an ugly history. And we have a lot of us are doing mm-hmm. a lot to try to, you know, show a different side to America, to, to, to show, you know, a different side towards humanity and, and mm-hmm. what we're about. Uh, however, sometimes, you know, like the things that happen in our country trickles down to getting participation, R3 into hunting the outdoors. Um, I, I've done this when I've done, you know, guest speaking events and everything. And I've, I've asked the question, hey, how do we go out and recruit people of color? Sometimes it's the appearance. If you go out looking like Daniel Boone, a wild man with a beard, that you know, nothing against the people from uh, Duck Dynasty, but, you know, the beards, <laughs> you know, the, the ragged, yeah, yeah. caveman look. If you have somebody go out into a black community looking like that, saying, hey, you know, we want you to come hunting. You're going to get some laughs, you're going to get some parents snapping kids away from the back, like, no, you ain't taking my kids out there. <laughs> the appearance matters. You want to look, you want yeah. to have a certain look because there's already stigma that exists between blacks and whites. Whites have stigmas against, stigma against blacks and perceptions. Blacks have stigma perception against whites. Mm. So, you know, something as simple as, you know, like, you know, right now our, our country is just messed up with uh, uh, political radicalness and just stupidity. Right. And, um, you know, I know Trump was a very, you know, in my opinion, a divisive president. You know, some people may disagree with me, but his message, you know, let's say that, you know, regardless of, you know, Trump, let's say you got a hunter, a group of hunter, hunters out there from organization that want to go out and, you know, try to do more to for diversity. Sure. Let's say they go out to an event. They got Trump flags and a Trump uh, 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 license plate. Mm-hmm. that's automatically going to reject a lot of your target audience who may, mm-hmm. you know, be appalled by that. And so there's a process. And a lot of people sometimes they just have to realize that what happened when, when you go out to establish contact and to reach your community, you want to be as sanitized, you know, you no, know, no Confederate flags on your car. If right. you do, you ain't going to get nobody, nobody go out, you know, con- 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 controversial symbolo- uh, symbology. You want to, in, in, in signs, you want to take that stuff, you know, don't have a person go out there with that. You want somebody who looks as, you know, welcoming as possible. I'll put it like that. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's a, that's a, that's an important thing to say because I mean, it's, it's really when you, you want to go to a much less, you know, lower stake circumstance here. It's like mm-hmm. you, if anyone has ever shown up underdressed, you right. know, go to a restaurant <laughs> and you notice, oh no, everybody here has got a collared shirt on and I got a t-shirt on. Like right. you, you stand out for, right. Right. I, I mean, whether that's, a, you think that's a stupid social norm or moray or mm-hmm. whatever. The fact of the matter is you do. And, and uh, it's, it, 
it communicates whether it should or not it communicates to the people around you something about you and right. and uh if if people um want to pretend that that doesn't exist on certain hot button yeah. topics or whatever yeah. Yeah. you're you're wrong sorry <laughs> you know and right. and it you can't control the mind of someone else and so right. uh you gotta you got to uh, meet people where they are i think is a great phrase you know meet people where they are try to try to be unoffensive try to be you know try to try to go to to where people are willing to find that common ground with you and it doesn't feel threatening and it doesn't feel, feel alarming and, uh, doesn't feel, you know, like it's setting off the offense buzzer because everyone, and, and if someone's like, well, don't be so easily offended. Well, I guarantee you, we could find something that offends you <laughs> and oh, yeah. I guarantee you, you could find something that offends me. And uh -huh. if you're going to pretend that that reality doesn't exist, that's ridiculous, you know, yeah. and and so I agree with you, Eric. I think uh, uh, appearance does matter for for uh, when we try to reach out to others. You know, um, well, it's no difference than when you go to get hunting permission, right? If you're going oh, to knock, yeah, exactly. you're going to go knock on Absolutely. someone's door, be looking in the windows. Hey, where are you? You know, I want I want to go out and hunt your your land. No, you're going to knock on that door. You're going to make sure your, your shirt looks nice. You're going to be yeah. you're, you're going to step back off the porch a couple feet so you're not up in right. their face when they open right. the door. Right. Appearance right. matters, right? And so, right. uh, 100%. I I agree with you there, Eric. I I think that that is really important. So you've already given us some tips here. So, um, hopefully we have a diverse audience. Um, I wish there was a, and who knows, maybe I'm just so technologically, uh, um, behind the times. Maybe a, there is a way to find that out. I don't know. I, I can't, you know, I get an idea a little bit from who follows on social media, who sends messages and stuff, uh, you know, on, on listening to the podcast and all that. Um, but hopefully I do have a diverse audience here, but if I don't, if you are listening in and you're a white dude like me, um, this is something that we need to consider. We need to look to uh, the other communities, the other cultures, um, uh, and and try and and uh, help include them in some way in this great lifestyle. And and somebody might be listening in and been like, "Well, hey, if if." Uh, you know, these different minority cultures just don't value hunting and they aren't interested in it. Why does it matter? And I think that's a good question. That's and, a good question. And, and, and I definitely want to get your perspective on that, but mm -hmm. I want to complete my thought here too, before I, I yeah, forget, yeah. forget it. Yeah, but, but on some issues, you know what, probably that's, that's okay. You know, because the, the, they aren't as in my opinion, as deep of a activity. Hunting oh. is deep. Hunting goes to our DNA. All uh -huh. of us exist on this planet, no matter what your heritage is. Every one of us exists because we have ancestors who hunted and, and took meat from the field because if, if they didn't, our genetic line would be extinct. You know, they had, that was the only way to get food not that long right. ago. And right. so to me then, if every one of us on the planet now has ancestors that hunted, then there is a deep connection 
back to hunting for all of us that I think should be fostered, should be nourished, should be, you know, given an opportunity for that to blossom again now in quote unquote modern times where, you know, you have a grocery store and and you have fast food and you have every other way that all of us can get food instantly. But I think that hunting and even fishing, you could say the same about has such a deep part of who we are. Uh, I don't know, Eric, if you've seen the video that uh, I've talked about on this podcast before Uh, Donnie Vincent, uh, did a video five years ago, something like that. Um, he was, he, I, I listened to him explain it on a podcast once. I think, uh, he, discovery channel, which is not super hunt friendly. Cause I think it's own, or well, not, not discovery national geographic. Discovery, oh, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think discovery channel has featured some hunting stuff before actually they, so. in the past, but then they stopped. Uh, okay. I was looking at having my show on uh discovery as well. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you, in 2019, okay. they got out of, the hunting aspect of it. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there, now we got the truth on that, but I think he was working with Nat geo, which has definitely been, you know, not pro hunting. And so he, but they wanted him to do some kind of show that included an element of hunting. And so he shot a video to explain why he hunts. And he talked about this very, this very thing. The video is called, uh, I believe it's called who we are great mm-hmm. five minute or so video for, if you're listening, go back and watch. And it explains this exact thing. We're all connected to hunting. So to me, it's not an issue of, well, these communities, they, I guess they just aren't interested. No, I don't think we should, we should just uh, mail it in so easy, you know? Right. Because they are interested. And mm. the thing is, I've, I've heard that, that um, I've heard that said many times go dating back to 2010. Hmm. I've heard it. Oh, you know, we need to get back then. It was called the diversity gap. And uh, now it's called, um, you know, I guess I don't know what the buzzword is now, though. But, um, you know, back then it was called diversity gap. And people have said, well, you know, I've tried. They just aren't interested. Hmm. Well, they don't they don't hunt because they can't afford it. (sighs) Those excuses are not true. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we tell ourselves things to make us feel better in our lackluster mm-hmm. approach towards fixing the problem. Um, however, there are some black people that don't hunt, uh, and just not aren't, just aren't hunters. All, not all white people hunt. Right. There are, yeah. There's a ton of white people that don't hunt, but, um, you know, there's a lot of perception that I have worked hard and tirelessly to overcome, you know, since I've been on the scene to try to dispel those myths. Um, I tell people I have no problem going into a community and getting people of color to hunt. None. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them have never hunted. I did a hunt uh, two weekends ago um, outside of Augusta, Georgia, where I had uh, four people on the hunt. None of them had hunted before, uh, ranging in ages from 40 to 50. Wow. Um, all of them shot at deer, three hit deer, two deer were recovered. And that experience, you know, oftentimes I tell people, and hopefully, you know, I'm sure your listeners can, uh, you mm-hmm. know, relate to this. It's all about the experience. It's about the introduction, mm-hmm. the opportunity. Again, when you introduce people to hunting, and I consider myself to be a specialist at that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> introducing yeah, yep. people to hunting and getting them out there to hunt for the first time. And uh, we, we, it's all about the delivery. Some people just don't want to hunt. And when they don't want to hunt, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I tell some people that um, I did a 
deal for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service up in uh, Massachusetts a few years back, and doing one of the private exercises, uh, I had a lady offer to take me hunting. I was going to be the new person that I have hunted. She offered to take me. And I told her I was, you know, acting as a lot of black people would or other people of color would if they're being invited to go hunting with somebody they don't know. You know, want to know who all is going to be out there on the hunt because um, how you introduce them, how you extend invitation to them matters. What mm-hmm. I'll tell your listeners, if anybody who may be, you know, interested in how to do this and how to be more successful in getting, you know, reaching the minority market. Um, and oh, by the way, I'm going to do a special Zoom seminar or webinar on this process. Mm. Since I consider myself to be my expert at doing it, I'm going to do a Zoom seminar on how to get more, how the white community can better reach the black community when it comes to hunting outdoors. Sure. But when it comes to that stuff, you know, when you, when you uh, reach out to them, it helps to establish some rapport with them before. Because, you know, the odds are just a stranger walking to a stranger and saying, hey, do you want to go hunting? They're going to be kind of like the Terminator, kind of taking in all kind of data on you. Okay, who is this person? <laughs> yeah, Where's he right. from? How do you look? How do you smell? What is he going? What is he, what is he up to? They got all this going on. And so yeah. if all the ducks in a row aren't lined up right, they're going to say no. But uh, you have to, it helps if you establish a rapport with the person. You yeah. know, I tell people, don't be like most politicians. Just show up around just for election time. <laughs> be there all yeah. year long. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, you know, the mayor of my town, you know, it was 50-50, you know, half black, half white town. The mayor was well received by both communities, you know, stayed in the black community, you know, so it helps to establish that relationship and that rapport with the person first before you try to get them to go out. Maybe invite them to go out to a range. Don't have the deck stacked so it's five or six white guys and one black guy. Yeah. Uh, I did a speaking engagement uh, about three, four weeks ago when I was introducing people who were completely new to hunting. I mean, from some people come down from from New York and all other kind of places had never hunted. And I was encouraging them to go out and hunt. And they was like, hey, you know, can you come take me? Can you take me hunting? And I said, hey, you know, go out with white guys because I'm sure you know white people who hunt. And they said, hey, did you hear that story about these white guys? Did this black guy out on a hunt and they killed him? And so I did hear about that story. Mm. But, but it's horrible. You know, it, it is. And those types of things will set progress back 50 years. Yeah. But I tell people that that's a rare situation. Those are rare situations. But you have to establish a rapport. You have to overcome people's objectives, you know, I guess objections to going out, but it can be done. It can be mm-hmm. done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's encouraging to have some direction there. And, and again, it makes a lot of sense with what you're saying. Um, it, it, when you really think about it, you know, the situation you're putting, you're asking someone to go into a, in a, a vulnerable, I guess maybe is the right word there. There, Whenever you ask somebody to do anything, you know, not just hunting, um, there's, there's a vulnerability there. You know, I'm sacrificing my time where I could have been comfortable at home doing what I always do. Um, I'm, you know, I don't know anything about this. You evidently know a lot about it. So I don't even know what questions to ask yet. And you, you know, and then let alone the, the, uh, cultural differences there, the, the, the appearance differences, even, uh, going back to like the childhood example of who do you see when you turn on the TV, you know, that's, that's, it's a big step of vulnerability. And then when you factor in that, we're using weapons, we're going out into the middle of nowhere, we're, you know, it's totally, you're asking people to totally leave their comfort zone. So we have Mm -hmm. to be, 
very cognizant of that when when you're introducing anybody to hunting and especially right. more so when you're when you're uh trying to help in this specific way of bringing somebody from a totally different a cultural racial background than yourself um yeah that that makes a lot of sense eric that's that's not, again going back to when we first started this part of the conversation these are things that that uh can't even really uh relate to it all but that's why it's so important to, to have the conversation with somebody such as yourself that that's lived it who's addressed it who's trying to to improve it and uh um i think it's it's so important so uh let's get a little uh as we as we uh wind this one down you're looking into the future do you mm-hmm. do things look good i know you, i can tell you're an optimistic person by by nature but uh do you feel like things are going in the right direction for for uh, making hunting more inclusive for people from all sorts of backgrounds? Well, you know, I told y'all I'm going to keep it real with you. I think there's um, things are looking optimistic for the talk. There's a lot of talk going on right now. Yes. Right now, there's a lot of organizations out there. I mean, I've just left a conference and everybody's talking about, you know, DEI, R3. Everybody's talking about that. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that it has become lucrative to be in the R3 mm. business, the diversity business, because what I've seen is a lot of organizations receiving funding, good funding, um, contracts to do work that they're really not capable of doing, because some of them contact me to do the work for them. Um, and while I mentioned that is that, you know, the talking part is good, but I measure the results, Kent, by what's mm. at the grassroots level, what's trickling down to the people in the neighborhoods and communities that we say we want to engage. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't mean poor people. A lot of times, you know, I, I, one of my, my pet peeves is when you mentioned like inner city people, they all have to think black, poor, you know, no money, you know, bad people. Inner city means you live inside the city. There's tons <laughs> yeah. of white people, but white people are never referred to as inner city, yeah. although they can live yeah. right to the black person. But um, I think that, you know, I, I look at, you know, is it, is, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it working? They have a good start. I remember the times when you can look for two, three years in a magazine and never see a black person. We're seeing black people in magazines now we're hunting. Uh, we're seeing, you know, black people being invited to organizations to be part of organizations. I have to, I'm going to a Ducks Unlimited banquet to, to tonight here in a few hours. Uh, we're probably going to be on black people there. But hey, I'm used to it. But what I'm doing is I'm bringing a whole group with me. I bought a table. We're gonna. I'm gonna bring you know black people with me to help. You know, you have mm. to help bring about that change you want to see by integrating people together. Because the thing you mentioned earlier when I was talking about how to get um, you know more diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, you know, sometimes the appearance of the messenger does matter. But here's the thing: I tell all your listeners, and that is that the common thing that we have, the thing we have in common as hunters, regardless of what color, is a love for the hunt. Mm-hmm. And I have done hunts where you have black and white people together who would never have come together had it not been for that hunt because we, they, run in different circles. But when it comes to hunting, that's that common bond that a lot of us will have. And so I've hunted a lot of places, a lot of different people, and it's the love of the hunt, that common bond for pursuit of game that will bond us a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that is what that is what we need to focus more on. Uh, because sometimes, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working with a few different states to try to bring, you know, more diversity to their state and to their, uh, um, hunting, um, uh, activities and, and hunting, you know, arena. But, uh, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's, we've gotten to start. Crystal Ball says that if it's going to be successful, 
we're going to have to get more minorities involved in the process, more minorities involved in the decision-making process, because right now, unfortunately, we have a lot of white people who are making decisions for the black community as to how we should go about getting more diversity. Hmm. And it's almost like, you know, a bunch of room, a room full of English speaking people trying to say how we're going to go out and teach Portuguese or teach Portuguese <laughs> to this group of people. Yeah, it makes no I mean, sense. You know, <laughs> may have an idea, but it helps to have somebody from that community involved in the, in the decision making process. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I think we'll get there, but we got to put I'm all about the results. I don't care about the pep talks. I don't care about the, the data boys. I don't care about none of that. What I care about is all we meet in our mission, all we meet mm-hmm. our goal, all we get more people from the minority communities out there hunting. And that's where more work should be done and needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And, uh, I agree. I, I mean, I, I, it makes a lot of sense when you, when you lay it out like that. And, and this has been educational for me. That's the only way I can agree with you. I had to get educated by you. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I, I didn't even know what I didn't know. And it's all uh, good. It's and, all good. It, it, at least you're open to learning and to understanding the problem. Some people are resistant, but at least you, you know, it's, it's no problem. I mean, it's good that you're, you know, uh, interested in it. Oh yeah. It's, it's critically important, I think. And, and, uh, hopefully, you know, our grandkids can be on a uh, podcast together someday and yeah, yeah. and talk doing about, a hunt together. Yeah, talk, <laughs> talking about how the, not even have to address the issue because it doesn't exist right. anymore. It's, right, that, because it's natural. Right, right. it's nothing ordinary. Right, just be talking about caribou hunting or something like that. You mm-hmm. know, that'd be that'd be that'd be awesome. And and uh, you know, I, that's what I that's what I hope and pray for someday. That yeah. that's what that's what the hunting community looks like. But uh, how can people uh, see more content from you. What's uh, well, what, what's the best ways people can connect with non-typical? Well, the best uh, way is to remember the name of the show because there's another entity out there that sounds very, very similar, but it's different. I and my brand is Non-Typical Outdoors Man, and uh, mm. I'm all over the internet. There's another group out there called Non-Typical Outdoors, so don't okay. click on the first thing that looks like Non-Typical Outdoors. But if you want to connect with uh, the content for the show, um, you can subscribe. It's a paid subscription to the show. It's mm-hmm. available as a web-based app right now. And if you go to www.ntotv, that's nontipicaloutdoorsmantv.com, uh, you can see the, um, the episodes. I have three seasons out so far. I'm still putting out content for season three. Uh, if you want to just reach me, you know, hit me up. Say, Eric, I got some questions. Hey, I want to talk. Hey, you know, I like what you said. I didn't. I hated what you said. Let's, you know, let's talk about it. You know, I mean, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I'm open to doing that. But you can also find me on uh, Instagram, uh, non typical outdoorsman. Mm-hmm. Uh, LinkedIn, Eric Morris, non typical outdoorsman. So if you just type in Eric Morris, non typical outdoorsman, um, you will find TV. I also have started a nonprofit, which is non typical outdoorsman incorporated. You will see information for that too. So um, yeah, I'd be happy, you know, to, to to talk to anyone who wants to talk. Um, you know, I am available for doing you know consulting work for state and federal agencies and some private organizations. So yeah, I, I would look forward to you know talking to people. Well, I I mean, I'm leaving this conversation feeling like you're a real treasure. So uh, I think our our country needs people like you, Eric, who are like you said, willing to be 100% real. And uh, you'll talk to you'll talk to anyone. I like that. I think that oh, yeah. that's oh, yeah. that's uh, that's the most important 
step forward. However, like you said too, it can't just all be talk. We got to have some walk to go with it. We right. got to We right. got to see the the changes happening and and real and practical. The yep the the <laughs> the results that are measurable. You know to right. to look right. at that and and people can say, wow, this is this is uh, getting better. So um, yeah. yeah. All great points, great content. Love hearing the hunting stories too, man. Uh, I'm excited. We all got them. All uh, hunters, we all. Got that's them. right. That's right. Well, uh, there's an awesome documentary um, called uh, "Stars in the Sky" made by Stephen Ranella and, and the Mediator crew. Of, I don't know, maybe five years ago. Um, and uh, I think at the beginning of that, the the way he he explains he's narrating he explains how they named the the film um he talks about how i think it was an african uh tradition uh, among african hunters from long long ago uh probably thousands of years ago is where the story i think uh is said to come from but african hunters i think said that the stars in the sky uh, were represented like, like different hunting stories or something like that, that are, you know, hunters that were communicating with each other in the cosmos or something like that. Um, uh, obviously, you know, a totally different way of looking at things than what them, than what we do now, thousands of years later. However, he said, um, I don't know what I believe about that, but, um, I think if we had all the the hunting stories from all of time, they'd be just as numerous as the stars in the sky. And oh, yeah. uh, I thought that I thought that was that was a pretty cool way to name the film and 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 uh, you know kind of when you really think I've thought about that so many times. Whenever I hear somebody tell a hunting story, it's like man, there really are just a countless amount of hunting oh, stories yeah. out there, and all of them are interesting in their own way. And so it was really fun hearing how you uh, um, had had such great hunting uh, memories in Alaska and Africa and even in other States and, and, uh, how you're, you're just so excited to introduce others to that and, and bring them along the way. I mean, that's, that's a mission of first gen hunter, you know, getting, getting people to experience it for themselves. And, and hopefully that we have that trickle down effect and, and how important is that too, when it comes to, um, you know, voting on conservation issues to me, there's, mm-hmm. there's no one more, more, well suited to talk about conservation than somebody who's a who's hunting for all the right reasons you know people that truly care about those ecosystems and truly truly care about what's what's happening and and um in the in the natural places around them so yeah i i 100 percent thank you for for uh all the work that you do and uh you're welcome if you, if you want to connect with Eric and non-typical outdoors men, don't forget that men part at the end, M-A-N. M-A-N. Yep. M-A-N, right? Yep. Outdoors man. Yep. Um, you can find all those links in the show notes of this episode. I will have them uh, posted there. They're hyperlinked. So all you got to do is click on them. It'll take you right where you need to go. Make sure uh, you, you uh, subscribe to uh, his channel and uh, be able to watch those videos of those hunts and, and, Instagram is a lot of fun to follow too because you get to see all of his mentorship work there too. The, the yeah. seminars he does and yeah. the, you get to see faces behind the people. You know, when Eric says, I helped 
you know, a 50 year old and a 40 year old. And you get to see who those people are when you go on his Instagram, you get to see these people <laughs> and the smiles on their faces, the curiosity as they, you know, maybe examine an antler or, or, uh, the, the happiness and joy that they get from eating a backstrap or something like that. You know, that's powerful seeing that. So make sure you get over there and follow on Instagram as well. Well, Eric, I really want to go hunting with you, buddy. Um, after, uh, after we, uh, wind this one down, let's talk about that for a minute. And, uh, yeah. to all of you listening in, make sure as hunting season keeps uh, flying along here, you take care and take someone hunting.